The Hannah family, like so many other families that live in East Nashville, is currently being subjected to all of the noise and chaos of four houses being built within 50 yards of my back deck. Um, you know, and the, and the streets get messed up and there are trucks and there are dumpsters and there are people everywhere and there's hammering and drilling at all hours of the morning. But in reality, for me, it's been fascinating to watch. Um, it might shock some of you, but I am not a handyman, so to speak. Um, I've never done construction. I don't know how houses are built. So, so I've been watching this house go up right next to us. Uh, and one day there was like this little brick house and then a demo crew came and it was gone. And then another crew comes and they take away all the debris and then some other people come and they prepare the lot and then they lay the foundation. And then, then my favorite crew is like the acrobats that do the framing you know, it's this, this chaotic symphony of these like 10 or 12 guys and they're running around and they just got like a truck full of two by fours. I think, isn't that what you call big pieces of wood? Two by fours. And they've got a truck full of these two by fours and, and, and they just, you know, two of them will grab the two by fours and they'll run over here and put it up and another one will put up a beam. And then there's like the, there's like the head acrobat and he's got the gigantic nail gun like on his holster, and he just kind of walks around, and they put up the beam, and ka-choom, ka-choom, ka-choom. And then somebody else puts up another beam, and ka-choom, ka-choom, ka-choom. And like 90 minutes later, there's a two-story house that's been built. And then come in like uh, uh, the people that put up like drywall, and then the plumbers that are fitting the pipes, and the electricians and the roofers and all of these people. You see, when, when you're building a house, there are many workers, many contractors that have many individual, very specific tasks. Plumbing and sheetrock and electricians and roofers, but all of those contractors are working towards one goal, right? To build a house. See, somewhere there's a general contractor or an architect or somebody that has the blueprint of this house. And that blueprint is, is the big picture that gives meaning to each individual task. A plumber's not fitting a pipe to, to do nothing. It's a part of a much larger picture. And it's that big picture that's called the meta-narrative. It gives meaning to all of the individual things. It's the larger all-encompassing theme that unites the smaller tasks. The Bible is so often studied, read, looked at as a collection of books of stories, of verses, of wisdom that teach us about God and teach us about ourselves. And, and on one level, that's true. But if we're to truly understand this, the holy word, living word of the God of the universe, we, we must recognize the greater story, the meta-narrative. 
You see, the Bible from beginning to end, from from Genesis to Revelation, it's the story of the creation, the fall, redemption, and restoration. Put more simply, this book, one work, the Word of God, is the story of the God of the universe entering into this fallen and broken world to restore it and redeem it and redeem humanity to himself as the sovereign Lord and bring us into relationship with him. One God, one plan, one story. When we read the Bible through the lens of this meta-narrative, it gives meaning to each book, each chapter. Each verse. You see, the stories, the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses, of Israel and Egypt and the Exodus, they're the, they're the God-breathed word of the creator of the universe, deep and informative on their own. But when viewed in the greater story, in the meta-narrative, is where they truly gain their meaning. And knowing the entire story, it is nearly impossible to separate the Exodus, to separate Exodus chapter 12 from the life and ministry and especially the final days of Jesus Christ. This morning, we get an opportunity to look at both of those. For the past seven weeks, we have been kind of systematically working through the early chapters of the book of Exodus. We've been looking at Moses as God kind of raised him up as a conduit through which he would set his people free from the bondage of Egypt. We've been, we've been looking at his people, uh, the Hebrew nation, the nation of Israel, as they have been conflicted and torn and, and broken down and beaten down, turned their back on the Lord, run back to Pharaoh, renegotiating the terms of their captivity. We've talked about how how this God, the God of the Exodus, the God of Moses, the God of Israel, the God that set them free from our bondage is the same God of 2018 that sets us free from our bondage. Last week, we had the opportunity to look at the plagues, God's great answer to Pharaoh's question in chapter 5 when Pharaoh asks, who is this God and why should I obey him? You know, kind of, kind of the great confrontation between God and Pharaoh as God through the plagues systematically breaks down and destroys everything Pharaoh and the Egyptians hold dear and believe in and worship to the point that God uses their false gods to destroy them. Now, last week, what you might have noticed is we went through the first nine plagues. And if you've read the book of Exodus, if you've heard the stories, you know that there are ten plagues. This morning, we have the opportunity to look at that tenth plague, which is so different from the first nine. The tenth plague the plague of the death of the firstborn. The plague in which God brought his 
fair yet brutal judgment into the land of Egypt. And this plague is different from the first nine plagues, not only because it's, it's more destructive, it's darker, but because this is the only plague that Israel was subject to. Now, some of you guys may be thinking, all right, Hannah, I don't know what version of the Bible you have up there, but my version that I read shows that Israel was also delivered from this plague just like the previous nine plagues. And you're half right. Israel was delivered from this plague, but it wasn't like the previous nine plagues. You see, if we pay close attention to these verses in Exodus chapter 12, the passage that Jordan read for us this morning, what we see is God giving explicit and detailed instructions on how the families of Israel, the families of his people, can be free from this plague how this plague can pass over their homes. If you remember these first nine chapters, you know, with frogs and boils and, and cows keeling over and dying and, and, and a darkness that, that is so thick and palpable you can feel it and touch it. In each one of those plagues, the plague did not arrive in the land of Goshen, the land that the, that, that the Israelites lived. They didn't have to do anything. When the darkness came so thick it was disorienting, completely blotting out the sun, we read that in Goshen there was still light. Here in Exodus chapter 12, as the tenth plague arrives, for the first time we see God giving detailed instructions on what to do when the angel of death arrives at their home exactly like he was arriving at the home of every Egyptian family. For the first time, the plague is coming for them as well. You see, in this moment, in this passage, in these instructions, God was telling the Israelites, at baseline, there's no difference between you and the Egyptians. My judgment will come for you in the same way it comes for them. You're subject to this just like everyone else. You see, it's in this moment that, that God truly, fully reveals himself in the land of Egypt. And we like to kind of skip over that because let's be honest, it's a little uncomfortable, right? That God would reveal himself in an act of great judgment. But what we don't recognize is that in this passage, God also reveals himself in an act of great mercy. You see, God's mercy is always tethered to his judgment. You can't have one without the other. If there's no judgment, there's no need for mercy. If there's no need for atonement, payment for a debt, there's no need for mercy. And it's in this passage that God does both. It's in this passage that God teaches his people that it is he and he alone 
that can stop the angel of death. It's he and he alone that saves them. He teaches them about their sin and he teaches them about his salvation. Can you imagine in every one of these homes, in this land of Goshen, suddenly having this stark realization that they also are subject to God's judgment, but having this great act of mercy as God gives them the opportunity to bring in a perfect spotless lamb. As they recognize their own sin and and prepare this lamb according to these instructions, can you imagine the care that they would have taken with every step being sure not to mess it up. Hands shaking, hearts and minds racing as they anticipate what that night would bring. Painting their doors with the blood of this sacrifice, this innocent sacrifice. And then the, the utter and absolute relief and gratitude they would have felt as the angel of death passes them by, seeing the blood, seeing that there has been atonement in that home. God provided his people in that moment a sacrifice to make payment for their sins. It's a concept that's known as substitutionary atonement. Big words meaning a debt must be paid and a third party will pay your debt. A third party will take your place. And as we look at the grand story of the Bible, as we look at the story of the creation and the fall and redemption and restoration, the story of God entering into this fallen and broken creation to restore humanity to him into a relationship with him. It's a theme that we see from beginning to end. It starts in Genesis with Abraham and Isaac. Isaac being Abraham's only son, and God tells Abraham, it's time to pay your debt. Take Isaac to the top of this mountain. Put him on an altar and sacrifice him. But in that last moment, God provides a ram to die in the place of Abraham's only son. Here in the book of Exodus, we see the Passover. Whereas the nation of Israel, just like the people of Egypt, are subject to God's judgment, but God provides them a perfect, spotless lamb. And that lamb has to die for each family. In Leviticus, as the nation of Israel grows, we see established an annual day of atonement where the high priest would take a perfect spotless animal into the Holy of Holies, into the very presence of God, and he would sacrifice that animal as a sin sacrifice for the entire nation. Now, there's an obvious progression in these stories. 
Each time the lamb, the sacrifice, the animal takes the place of a larger and larger group of people. In Genesis, the sacrifice is for one man. Here at the Passover, we see a lamb for every family. It's a day of atonement, one animal is sacrificed for the sins of an entire nation. All leading up to the first chapter of John. When John the Baptist sees Jesus coming towards him and says, look, it's the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the entire world. You see, Jesus Christ was the ultimate lamb. Not for a person, not for a family, not for a nation, but for all of humanity. Three years after John saw Jesus and declared him the lamb of God that came to take away the sins of the entire world, Jesus triumphantly, intentionally, provocatively rode a donkey in to Jerusalem with the crowds lining the streets shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. Jesus rode that donkey into Jerusalem knowing full well that within a week those same crowds would turn on him. Knowing full well that at that time of Passover, he would be the lamb sacrificed for all of mankind. This morning, we get to reflect on and celebrate the lamb of God that was provided for us. The lamb of God that was sacrificed for us as we partake in the Lord's Supper. You see, it's no coincidence that Jesus was betrayed, arrested, tortured, and executed on that cross, dying for our sins at the time of Passover. That night, the night he was arrested, he had one final Passover meal with his closest friends, his disciples, his closest followers. It was something they had done every single year of their lives. Just like in the passage that we read this morning, it was prescribed by God that from that Day at the Passover where the Lord saved his people and delivered them from Egypt. Every year they would have a very specific meal to remember what God had done for them. And Jesus had one more Passover meal with his friends on that last night. But one thing was missing as they approached the table. There was no lamb. Jesus served the bread and the wine to his closest friends. And he looked at them and he said, eat this bread. It's my body that's been broken for you. Drink this wine. It is my blood that has been spilled for you. They're morbid words and they're kind of awkward when you hear them today, but but. In that time, in that context, in that moment, there was no mistaking what Jesus was saying. 
He was saying, tonight as we remember the God that delivered his people through the sacrifice of a lamb, I am the lamb that is being sacrificed for you. These elements that are sitting on these tables, they're not magic. They don't bring salvation. But they do remind us of the sacrifice of the ultimate lamb that was slain for our sins, for the sins of the world. They're a public acknowledgement that we are fallen and broken and in desperate need for a savior. A declaration that we recognize we are no more deserving of that sacrifice than those Egyptian families or those Hebrew families were at the Passover in Egypt. First Corinthians 11 tells us that we should examine ourselves as we approach the table. This morning, I want us to take a few moments just to prepare our hearts and our spirits to receive the elements of the Lord's Supper. We ask this morning that, that just where you sit, you take some time to reflect and to pray in your bulletin. We've placed some things for you to reflect on and pray about. We ask that you take time to examine yourself, to examine your personal relationship with Jesus. Take a few moments. Confess any unrepentant sin, any, any barrier that will prevent you from being fully in fellowship with God this morning. Reflect on Jesus Christ the ultimate lamb, your Passover lamb that was sacrificed for you. Finally, thank God for restoring your relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ. Now there are many ways to take the Lord's Supper. Tradition often holds that it's a moment for a community to come together to partake in the Lord's Supper together. This morning, we're going to break with that tradition. We have stations at the back of the sanctuary. We have stations at the front of the sanctuary. We want to create a moment between you and God. As you sit and you pray and you reflect, when you feel moved, approach the table. You can take the elements right there. You can carry them back to your seat. And take them in your own. And Jason will come up and lead us in a time of worship and reflection. Would you pray with me? God, this morning, we acknowledge we do not deserve your mercy, and your grace. We come to you fallen and broken, 
grateful for the sacrifice of your son, the ultimate Passover lamb for our sins. Remind us through these elements of his sacrifice, the atonement that we received so that we may be reconciled to you. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you.